ahead if you have your Bibles or if you have a phone, some, some device that can look up the, the biblical text. Uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Um, it is after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and the first chapter is the very beginning of the, of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, where we said, in the beginning. Um, and today is Easter. Today is one of the most famous uh, Christian holidays uh, on par probably with Christmas, although we kind of go all out for Christmas, don't we? Uh, we make a really big deal out of that, Jesus becoming, uh, being born as a human, God putting on flesh. But uh, how much uh, would that really matter if at the end Jesus had just been crucified and that was it? Christmas only matters because of Easter. And Easter is the pinnacle, it's the, the triumphant amen, it's the exclamation point at the sentence of Jesus' life. It is the ultimate vindicating event in the life of Jesus Christ. And on Easter, we celebrate that Jesus was dead, fully dead bodily, not pretending, it wasn't a trick, and that when he got up from the grave, when the stone was rolled away by the angels, and that he walked out, he walked out with a body that could eat and that could drink. He walked out with a body that was real. He walked out with a body that still had scars from when he was crucified. There was continuity in the atoms and in the muscle sinew and the skin and the bones and the brain and the eyeballs that was nailed to a cross three days later or three days earlier. This is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you might think, that's crazy. And yes, it is. It's the, it's the true fairy tale. It's, it's the greatest story ever told. This is the proclamation of Easter. And, and the question is, why does it matter? Like, why do we make a big deal out of this guy who 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world got up from the grave? Why would that make any difference to us today? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk exactly about why it is that the resurrection matters. And there's so many different angles that we could approach this from. We could talk about the hope that comes from resurrection, the, the eternal life that we have, but what I want to focus in on, on today is that the resurrection shows us that Jesus is who he said he was. The resurrection actually proves it's the vindication that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the bringer of life in light. I want to give you two stories of, of people's lives who, who were around the time of Jesus, whose lives were actually transformed by this message. You see, Peter is a guy whose name was Simon. He was renamed to Peter, which means rock. And Peter was a really, really close friend of Jesus, maybe the closest. And you might know him as St. Peter, the one who stands at the gate of heaven that you might see when you get there one day. Um, we don't know that that's true. That's just what people say. I don't know why or where that came from, but there you go. You might have to tell him why you deserve to get in. You may not. Probably not. If you're in Christ, you don't have to tell him. So, Peter, really close friend of Jesus, really close friend. He sees all the great stuff. He sees Jesus transform on a mountain, transfigure, and start to glow and, and show his glory. And he's, there's no doubt this guy is not just a normal dude. He sees him do all kinds of miracles. He sees him multiply food to feed thousands of people. He sees him walk on water. He, in fact, is called out onto the water with Jesus. He sees Jesus calm a storm. He sees him heal his own mother in law, I believe. He sees Jesus resurrect a girl from the dead. He sees it all. He knows everything there is to know from a human perspective about Jesus, the miracle worker and teacher. And then Jesus is arrested. And Peter denies that he even knows 
Jesus to save his own skin. And then Peter runs away with the rest of the disciples, and Jesus is crucified alone and forsaken. The only ones there are the women that love him, his, his aunt, his mom, and Mary Magdalene, and then John, the writer of this gospel. Everyone else is making fun of him and accusing him. But then what happens? Easter happens. Peter runs to the tomb, and it's empty, and the stone is rolled back. There's no way this is possible. That's exactly right. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. And then Jesus appears. Then Jesus appears. And this is what Peter says. Weeks later, Jesus appears. Jesus ministers to them for 40 days. He, he ascends into heaven. And then Peter stands up in front of a crowd of about 3,000 people of Jewish countrymen in the city of Jerusalem saying that he's seen all this stuff happen, that he was with them. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you all crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, untying the binding cords of death, because it was not possible for him to be held up by it. Later on in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, him and his posse. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter becomes confident yet again. Why? Because he's been assured of the identity of the one that he followed for so long. It came into question at the crucifixion. Is this really the guy that we thought we were supposed to follow? He's being murdered by the Romans. This doesn't make sense. But now he's alive. Oh, now it makes sense. There's proof. He's been vindicated by God. He's been enthroned in heaven and he's coming back one day. My life can change. Well, what about another guy? Maybe someone who wasn't so close to Jesus. Paul, another famous man in the Bible. He wrote most of the New Testament. Well, not by volume, but most of the letters of the New Testament. Paul was not close to Jesus. In fact, he was an enemy of Jesus. He was a part of the party that accused Jesus of blasphemy and sentenced him to death, or at least called for him to be sentenced to death by Pilate. And he was rounding up Christians. He was throwing them into prison. He was there putting his hat in the ring when people were stoning and killing Christians. And then he's riding on a horse one day. He's getting his, his giddy-up on all the way to Damascus. And then what happens? A blinding light. He falls off the horse, and he hears a voice. Saul, which is his, his given name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Get up. You're no longer a persecutor of Christians. You're now going to be my chief apostle to the Gentiles. What a turn of events. Didn't plan that one. Didn't go to college for that one. Didn't have that one in the, in the, in the plan. But here we go. You got to adapt. You got to adapt to new circumstances. You got to, you find new data, it changes everything. What's the new data? There's Jesus. There he is. I can't go on the way I went before because why? Everything they're saying about him, I know now is true because I saw him. So here we see the closest friend potentially of Jesus and a sworn enemy of Jesus and the Christians, both by the resurrection convinced of the identity of Jesus and their lives are transformed. And so where are you? Where are you? You might be, you might have been in church since the day you were born, basically, and followed Jesus for 90 years, and you're, you're set. But maybe you've grown cold. 
Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you're like Peter where maybe you've come to doubt. Things have happened in your life. You've lost someone close to you. You've lost a job. Is God who he says he is? Is he faithful? Is he, will, is he able to do the impossible in my life and in this world? Maybe you're disillusioned by politics and, and the state of the world and the way you see things going, what, no matter what direction you come from. Are we sure that there's a God who's really in control of this and who's really in charge of this? The answer is, if there's a man named Jesus who's also God who rose from the dead, the answer is yes. We just don't see it finally yet. But maybe you're like Paul. Maybe you've come here and, and you've actually never believed in Jesus Christ at all. Like, this stuff is bogus. That's okay. But my, my goal today is to show you that he's the son of God and that there's no other person, there's no other way for you to, to, to receive the life and the knowledge of eternal life that you actually crave. And so today, the, the, the main point is I pray that we would believe in Jesus, the word of God, and receive life and light. We believe in Jesus, the word of God, and receive life and light. So, in John 1, if you have your Bible, John 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, in the way back beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What's going on here? What's going on here? When you hear the word in the beginning, it might make you think of a couple of things. If you're thinking of just normal English usage, this is like the first thing in a series of events. Um, what's being referenced here isn't just the beginning, like the first moment of creation. It's actually a, an echo back to, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first book of the Bible that talks about the creation of the world. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created time. Like, for there to be time, there has to be a sequence of events, and for there to be a sequence of events, there has to be mutable or changeable matter that can actually go through a change of events. Before that, there was no matter. There was just God who is, doesn't have a body. He's purely spirit. He's eternal. He's not subject to time. So in the beginning, before he created anything, there was God. And what John, the gospel writer, is saying is that at that same time, in eternity, outside of time, outside of creation, was the Word. He's eternal. He's in eternal uh, habitation with God. Well, what are we talking about when we say the Word? Well, there's, there's, there's two backgrounds here that we have to think of. First is you think of literally the Word spoken by God in the Old Testament. So God has a, a Word, He has a message, and there's something that you can get out of that. There's actually the thought, right? I've got something I want to say. I've got a message in my mind. And then there's the spoken utterance of it. But whatever it is, it's this intelligible unit of thought. There's a word that comes to you. Here's the word. Here's the message. And so he is this speech, this utterance from God. And this, this speech, this utterance is what God uses to create the whole universe. It's what God does to, to, or uses to speak to his people and to direct them and to instruct them. But then there's this other background in Greek philosophy. Uh, it's this word logos. Logos or logos. And the logos in Greek philosophy... You ever heard of the Stoics? You ever heard of the Stoics? Stoicism's having a little bit of a revival today. Did you know that? Have you ever seen the book? It's been on the top 20 list of Amazon's, all of Amazon's books for 247 weeks. It's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Four-Letter Word. You seen this? It's in airports, it's in bookstores. If you haven't seen it, maybe you don't look at books. That's okay. It's a book. 
And there's another book that's really making a surgence called How to Be a Stoic. And what's going on here? Stoicism was this idea that the world is controlled and is animated and empowered by this divine uh, a substance called a logos, which is a rational principle. It was this rational animating force behind everything. And so everything, if you look around, has order. The, the, the stars, the sun, the moon, the way our bodies work, everything has order. And people have, tr there's trends in the way that we operate as humans. And the Stoics looked at that and they said, there's something animating and directing and guiding and ordering the way the universe works. And we're going to call it the logos. But here's the thing about their logos. It wasn't personal. It's this impersonal force that just empowers everything. And so they had a really fatalistic, really nihilistic view of the world. So if something happened to you, it was out of your control. It was according to fate. It was according to logic. And so their, their uh, way of life is to say, you shouldn't care too much. You shouldn't give a... And in fact, when you stop caring so much, you'll be way freer to live life in this world that's just controlled by pure, cold, rational logic. And the only way to find meaning in this life is to really uh, become the most virtuous and hardened version of yourself possible. So you have this kind of morphed into really super masculine pursuits and the 12 rules of a, of a better life and et cetera, et cetera. It becomes this self-improvement project that's based on the fact that there actually is no greater purpose in the world, just cold logic, so I better just become the best version of myself I can be until I die. Their way of, of, of conceiving the world actually produced a way of being in the world. And this is all over the place. If you haven't seen it, this is all over the internet. This is all over the bookstores. This is the, a, a resurgence of this philosophy. And John is saying, hey, there is an animating force of the, of the universe. There actually is an animating and ordering rationality behind the, the universe, but he's a person. It's not impersonal. It's a person. And not only is it a person, but it's a person who is totally good, who is totally true, and he loves you. He wants what's best for you. And there's an end to the story. So this word, this ordering principle of the universe, this word from God was eternally with God and we see is eternally God himself. So there's this unity with God and this distinction from God. This is why we as Christians confess one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A popular illustration to kind of help us understand this, that he's God, but not God. It's the Father and the Son, yet they're both God, is to think about the Son. The earliest Christians talked about this. Think about the Son. When you see the light of the Son and you feel the heat of the Son, what do you know is there? The Son, right? Is, can, you, can you separate the light of the Son from the Son itself? No. When you remove the Son, you remove its light, you remove its heat. The source and what comes from the source are sort of in our experience identified. Now we know in modern science that there's like photons and that light goes out and it breaks down a little bit. But what we're saying is with the Son and the Father that there's this sourcing that makes them one and that they go together and that they eternally exist together in this relationship. And so Jesus, though he became man, as God is eternal. As man was born of a virgin Mary. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? If you fell into a hole in the ground, go with me here. Fall into a hole in the ground, you're walking along, and oops, there's a hole, I didn't see it, I fell in the ground. Now you're in the ground, in a hole, and you can't get out. It's a slippery wall. How do you get out? Who would you like to come rescue you? 
who would you vote on to come pick you up out of that hole, to reach down and grab you and lift you out of that hole? I love my dear son. I love him. He's about to turn two in a couple weeks, in a, in a month. And uh, I would not pick my son to come lift me out of that hole. I just wouldn't. I love him. He's cute. He makes funny sounds. He doesn't know how to say words yet, really. He loves milk. He loves to eat. He also loves to come work out with me. And I know that when I'm in the garage and I'm, doing, I'm working out, he comes up to the barbell and he, he goes, <sighs> and it doesn't move. And he's like, he's like pumped he did something, right? He's, he's, he's ready to go. And he's got a little plastic set that he does and he puts it over his head and he does his squats. His form is perfect. He hasn't sat in an office chair yet for 13 years and gone stiff like the rest of us. <clears throat> he can actually squat well. Knees over toes, good stuff. My son is not strong enough to pull me out of that hole as much as he wants to be. He's just not. He's just not. And uh, who, would you, who would you come have come pull you out? You might think of someone who's really strong. But guess what? We are all in a spiritual hole that we can't get out of. We are all in this hole. We, are, we have plummeted down away from God, and God is is infinitely higher than us. We could never on our own ability or even with the help of your best self-help book, whoever you follow on YouTube or Instagram, whoever you follow that gives you all the tips to a better life, tells you how to be a better parent, tells you how to eat and maximize your, your, your potential, right? You're reading David Goggins and you're callousing the mind. You want to run a 50K next year. You're not going to reach the divine. You're going to die. And we've talked about this here. Like you could eat all the blueberries, and, and kale you want, it doesn't solve our deepest, deepest needs that we all know that we have. What's it require? It requires God himself coming all the way down to grab us and to meet us where we're at. And that is why it matters that Jesus, the one born of the virgin, is also fully God because it is God reaching all the way down to where we are to get us and to bring us out of the pit of destruction. There's no other savior that's gonna work who's strong enough. There's no other savior that's gonna work. Like whatever you're giving yourself to that you think is gonna finally fill up that hole, it's not gonna work. And we, I say this on repeat because like this is what we do every week. This is what I do every week. We go to these other saviors that just don't work. And we need more and we need another fix. We need to buy another thing. We need to watch another episode. We need to drink another can. Whatever it is for you, it, it's never going to satisfy. Oh, there's only one who can come down and actually solve the problem and take us out of that pit. And it's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, Jesus Christ. And the resurrection declares, this is the Son of God. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This one who persecuted Christians says, when I saw him, I realized this is the Son of God enthroned in power in the heavenlies who's coming back to save all creation. So this is what John is telling us and it says that all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then look what he says in verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4. So we know that he is the eternal word of God. He has to be the eternal word of God if he's going to save us. But it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we've done kind of all the heavy lifting now, so now we get to just talk about what does it mean that he's the eternal word of God? Well, it means that he is the one who actually possesses life and is able to give it to those who need it. And who needs life? Every single person in this room. And I'm not just talking about your mom had you and you still eat and you're still breathing. I'm talking like whole soul and body life for all eternity. He is the one who gives life. See, in the beginning, as God's creative instrument, God created, God's creative word, he is the one through whom God creates all things. So we see this, that he, God speaks. He says, let there be light and land and animals and all these different things. So imagine the Father is the mind and uh, the Son is the hand and the Spirit is the brush. And, and this is how God is painting things into existence in the world. Or imagine uh, the Father is the mouth and the Son is, is the word, the, the actual articulate word. And then the Spirit is the, is the breath that, that speaks the word. And you have the Father speaking everything into existence. Like that word is coming forth as the instrument through whom God is creating. And in the same way, he's the same instrument through whom you have to receive life. There's not another instrument. Like you can't go talk to Gandhi and get the same life. You can't go talk to Allah and get the same life. This is not popular in our day. There's a designated instrument through whom the Father speaks and through whom he gives life. Jesus says this in chapter 5, verse 21 of this book. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Who does? The Son. Who's the Son? Jesus. No one else. There's no other one who gives life. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. As the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself too. And so it's through the Son that you then receive the life that you so desperately need. So what about light? So Jesus is the source and the one through whom life comes. What about light? It says that the light shines in the darkness in John 1, 5. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome, it has not mastered it. It hasn't, even, it hasn't comprehended it. It hasn't conquered it. It hasn't been able to grasp what the light is. Well, what's the darkness? Like, what is it shining into? Well, we use this phrase, don't we? What does it mean to keep someone in the dark? Right? It means that you withhold information from them. It means they're ignorant. If someone's in the dark about a situation, it means they can't see their way around. And the world, apart from God, your life apart from God, is in darkness. And we're kind of groping around. We're all trying. Has anyone figured out like, how life is supposed to work? Like We're all just groping around trying to figure it out. And what about if the one who, who made it all and who made it to work a specific way, what if he actually tells us how it's supposed to work? Oh, boom. The light bulb comes on. Oh, now I can see. Oh, there's the chair. There's where I'm supposed to brush my teeth. There's the bed where I lay down. I don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. Like God has made it to work a specific way. And when he turns the light on, now you can use the world as it's supposed to be used. And you can live in it and glorify him and worship him rather than the chaos that we experience every single day. Jesus talks to various different people about his identity. And in the Gospel of John, he comes to a guy named Nicodemus, who's also a Jewish leader. And Nicodemus come, actually excuse me, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. You know when he does it? In the middle of the night. He comes at night. That's not just like a throwaway detail. That's important. Because when Jesus tells him, you need to be reborn again from above, Nicodemus doesn't understand. 
Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things from the scriptures? See, there's ignorance, there's, there's a lack of understanding from this man, Nicodemus. We, we learn that he eventually believes. But there's this lack of understanding and it's characterized by darkness. The next chapter, there's a woman from, a, from a, 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 basically a half-breed Jewish nation called Samaria who Jesus meets in the middle of the day at high noon. The light's on. And he says, I'm the Christ. And she believes. And she runs and she tells everyone and her salvation comes to her village because there's been knowledge of the truth. The light has come on. So this word of God, this eternal word of God, he brings life because in him is life. And when that life comes to you, that life is light. It brings knowledge about how the world is supposed to work, about where the world is going, about how you're supposed to live in it. After talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, or maybe John says this, the reason we don't know is the, the dialogue kind of flows into a, a, a monologue. And it says, this is the judgment. This is the judgment of the world. The light has come into the world. There, there doesn't have to be confusion anymore about how the world's supposed to work. It's, the light has come. The light has been turned on. But people love the darkness rather than the light. Ah, oh, it hurts my eyes. I'm going to go back in the dark room. That's what we do. It takes a minute. My daughter came into my room the other day in the middle of the night. She did it last night too, but she did the other night. And I had to get out of bed. And I tell you, I, I, kid, I kid you not, I ran into the wall no less than three times on the way to her room. Not only was I like, you know, sleep drunk kind of, kind of feeling, but I was like, I, the light, I turned the light on. I couldn't open my eyes. They're sticking together. This is what happens. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is how it's supposed to be? It can be jarring. If you've lived a certain way your entire life, and then your eyes are open to something completely different. It's jarring. And God has to attune our eyes. He has to open us and give us the spiritual ability to perceive it. Otherwise, we'll turn away from it because we love the darkness. We're used to it. Our pupils aren't dilated. We don't have the spiritual capacity. He has to give us that capacity. But do you know why they love the darkness? It says they love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You may not like the light because you don't want to give up the evil deeds that you do. Happy Easter. <laughs> and you know what? That's the truth. It's really, really, really hard, and I speak from experience, it's really, really hard to come into the light about things that's really messed up about your life. It's really hard to, to come clean about that. And to admit, I've got a problem. I've been, I've been walking in the darkness and I've been living life completely wrong. It's hard to lay that out on the table because, man, it is scary. It is vulnerable. You have to admit that you're not awesome. But then when you do, you know what happens? Healing. That's a kind of death. And when it happens, you know what God does to dead things? On Easter, you know what he does to dead things? He raises them. When you die, you will find life. If you try to save your life, if you try to stay in the dark, you'll perish. You'll die in the dark. If you die to the dark and you come in the light, you'll live. That's what's going on here. And the way we know that's true is that Jesus died and then rose again. And he's the first one to do it, not the last one. One of us might be one of the last ones. I don't know. Or maybe it will happen at once, simultaneously. 
So let's recap and let's conclude. The resurrection of Jesus Christ declares emphatically and finally that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father. And that matters because to be one with the Father means that he can be the one who is the source and the, the conduit, the instrument of life and of light in our lives and in the world. Excuse me. And in the world. And so today, if you have turned away from the light, maybe you once believed. If you've turned away from the light, if you've turned away from the word, come back to him. And if you've never believed in Jesus as the word of God, as the Messiah, as the king of the world, and you know that you need the life and the light of God, he's the one. Believe in him. Believe in him and be saved. And if you're, if you're spiritual life, you'd say, David, I, I've, I do believe, I'm, I've been walking with the Lord, but I just feel lukewarm. Don't buy into the lie that'll start to creep in your head that there's other sources. Because you'll try, to, you'll try to do both and. And this is actually what Israel did in the Old Testament. They tried to do both. We really liked that Jesus, or we really liked what was Jesus, but we really liked that God, that Yahweh rec, re, uh, rescued us from Egypt. And we like that he helps us beat our enemies when we need him. But also when things are good, I think I'm just gonna go over here and worship this other idol under this tree and, and kill different animals and kill even our children for these, like, we're going to do both. Be careful, Christian, that you don't try to worship God in, in the world because you can't have a foot in darkness and a foot in light. You have to walk in the light as he is in the light. Only the fully divine son of God has the power and authority to give us eternal life. Only the fully divine and eternal son of God has the insight and authority to give the light of God's revelation to us. So I pray today that if you are in any of these categories, that you would turn to Jesus and that you'd believe in him. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.